0: Hi, everyone. This is Michael. In this episode, I spoke with Courtney Carruthers, a professor in the College of Fisheries and Oceans at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. The first paper that I read of Courtney's described the problems with catch share policies in fisheries governance. Catch shares, otherwise known as individual transferable quotas or ITQs, allot individual rights to some fishers, but not others, and then commodify such rights in a market. They're basically cap and trade for fisheries. It is well documented that these lead to consolidation of fishing rights and the alienation of local users from traditional fishing grounds. And yet catch shares persist as policy panaceas in the United States and elsewhere. During our conversation, we talked about cat shares and we talked about the local, often indigenous systems that they impact. Towards the end of our conversation, we also talked about how Western scientific methods might be reconciled with traditional ecological knowledge and local cultures without the former dominating the latter. This was a challenging conversation, but I learned a lot, not just about cat shares, but about the nature of local knowledge as a distinct and important paradigm for environmental use and management. Okay, so Courtney, I'd love to ask you about what I increasingly call your origin story. You got a PhD in, was it University of Washington? Do I have that right? Yep. And that was in anthropology? Yep. Because I saw that you you label yourself as an environmental anthropologist. And my understanding, so I, I, I hang out with anthropologists now. Which sounds kind of funny to say, but I've I've learned of the whole like four fields of anthropology, particularly in American anthropology. And my understanding is that most folks who call themselves environmental anthropologists are that's like a subset almost of culture anthropology. Mm-hmm. Is that yes. how you has that how you see yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely. I mean, yeah, my origin story definitely wouldn't start with anthropology. I feel like I found my way to that pretty late. I had done my undergraduate work more in environmental sciences, but had a real interest in sort of issues of class. I grew up in Pittsburgh, a lot of steel mill, like union, uh, really, you know, working class kind of issues and, and got really excited about labor rights and different things and didn't know much about higher ed and went to college and got very excited about environmental sciences I had you know growing up in Pittsburgh I was pretty disconnected from any sort of environmental engagement in you know, the post-industrial city and, and just really didn't have a a family that you know went camping or anything it was all about shutting out the outside right like the windows weren't open because of the soot and anyway um learned a ton in college about you know the study of environmental sciences and was excited to um Get a position working in the Adirondacks at a fish hatchery um, under underneath Cliff Craft, was, was my early mentor in fisheries. I didn't really study fisheries, but had landed this position. And it was fascinating. Like I learned right away I didn't like the fish, you know, fin clipping fish and, and kind of working with fish was not suiting me. Um, and so he sent me to interview fishermen um, in the I, I think it was the Salmon River, a tributary of Lake Ontario. Um, and it was this fascinating um, kind of class struggle going on between local fishermen that were using treble hooks to catch fish, like to eat, right, and then like very, you know, sort of wealthy fly fishermen who didn't view the treble hook as like a sportsman-like hook to catch fish. They were all about, you know, the, the craft of fishing, and for me, as someone that grew up with absolutely no engagement in fishing, I was fascinated by this whole like, why is this ethical and this isn't, and what's going on here? And it turned out that they made illegal the treble hook, so that was like the locals could no longer use that way of catching fish, snagging fish. It was unsportsmanlike. So I think that like honed me in on some of these really interesting class and equity issues that I was interested in kind of growing up in Pittsburgh with like enormous wealth and like immigrant communities who had very little um, playing out like in a river system with like who who gets to decide what is a good relationship with fish, how power, you know, and class, you know, connect there. So that cliff, my my mentor, uh, Dr. Kraft, uh, I think led me into some basically saying like environmental anthropology seems like a good fit for these kind of interests and so I was you know googling around and the University of Washington had a really I think innovative program on environmental anthropology and many of us came into anthropology from environmental sciences and that was actually very interesting within the Department of Anthropology because I think the the core cultural anthropologists did not necess- necessarily see our work as anthropology. They saw it as too sciency, I think. I mean, I'm kind of broad this here, but it was like, we didn't have the chops, you know, we, we didn't have the, we hadn't studied enough of the critical social theory to like be part of that community, but we were we were, we were taking our environmental science classes alongside, you know, critical anthropology, political ecology, you know, anthropology development. So I feel like we, and i think we all everyone that graduated from that program like we're in these interfacing positions where we we do have sort of enough of the anthropology critical theory chops but we also work with you know natural scientists a lot and sort of work in that translatory you know space so i think for me i in, in anthropology you know has its like many disciplines the the sort of recognition of its colonial roots and and um, I don't really identify with the discipline as much anymore. I feel like I I, I really um, highly value ethnography. I highly value deep qualitative research that really helps understand cultural perspectives, cultural pluralism. Like that's really heart of what I do. But like the discipline, I guess I've I've always I've never really felt welcomed into it because of that early experience of being too environmental sciencey. but um,
0: yeah. That's fascinating. And so you went to Cornell for college, right? So that was actually not yeah. too far away from where you grew up. Right. Um, and then, so I my origin story, and I'm not gonna really talk about it, but it involves the Adirondacks. It involves going oh, up cool. and spending up some time near Blue Mountain and Blue Mountain Lake.
1: Okay, yeah. Um,
0: it was just a very formative place for me when I was like m- like seven or eight or nine years old. Just like a really majestic place turning to your discussion of these kind of disciplinary uh, boundaries the kind of and the boundary work that needs to be done to navigate them um, we've heard that from a bunch of our guests that part of their origin story is that they initially were interested in the sciences they had maybe even like a first career in environmental science and then a, a lot of them had some a, 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 a story similar to yours a lot of them, Had a moment where they're like, "Oh, well, like you know, it's fine if I can document what's happening in this forest, but nothing's going to change if I don't actually talk to the people who are using the forest. Like, I'm not helping to solve the problem by getting increasingly precise measurements of what's happening biophysically." Right. And the 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 disciplinary boundary question, I think, is a really interesting one. I mean, it's it's it really seems, from my perspective, like just too bad that you felt kind of unwelcomed. In a space that for you otherwise kind of felt like an intellectual home. And that relates to it. You know, one of the questions I did want to ask you is what do you view yourself as? And do you have use for the word interdisciplinary? Do you view yourself as an interdisciplinary scientist? Because I realize that I'm in my own work, we, you know, in the commons field, we're kind of rah rah interdisciplinary. We have a bunch of in it, We have a bunch of arities, right? It's like it's interdisciplinary. There's like transdisciplinarity, which I think is also something that actually is reflected in your work about engaging with local communities and dogenizing their, like the, their values into the actual work. Like, do you use those words? Do they do important work for you in your in your understanding of yourself and your work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I feel like I, my initial feeling when I hear the word interdisciplinary is like, it's my sense is it's done so poorly a lot of the time. Like, I feel like we in, you know, fisheries, you know, I'm part of a fisheries faculty. Uh, I've been there for 13 years. I do very little interdisciplinary work with my colleagues. It's very hard to translate the kind of work I think is important in the way I do work. And like, all the responsibilities of research and community engagement with fish biologists and and, and fish stock assessment, you know, faculty. So it's really hard to do that interdisciplinary work. I feel like the um, interdisciplinarity among social sciences, I'm thinking of a um, working group that I was part of through NOAA, where it was all social scientists that got together to do interdisciplinary work. And that was incredibly interesting. Like we were more aligned to be able, like we 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 shared similar frameworks so could do more of that like integrated cross-disciplinary work um, in the fish realm and I think part of what our kind of current work is is less kind of merging western science disciplines together but more opening the space of western disciplinary approaches being really limiting and how can we actually work across knowledge systems so how do we bridge Western approaches regardless of discipline with indigenous approaches and, and really try to transform thinking about expertise and knowledge like much more deeply.
0: Yeah. So okay, so several questions here too. Do you do you think it's too bad that there isn't more I mean because what you're saying, Courtney makes a lot of sense to me that a lot of what kind of gets marketed as interdisciplinary work. Yeah, it feels like what I call kind of the baton model where like, okay, I do my part. And then you do yeah. your bit, but there's not integration. It feels like kind of people are in a room, but they're not actually working together very much.
1: Yeah. I, I feel like it comes down to really different, like goals of research. Like I I'm trying to work more with like evolutionary ecologists and their interest, why they're studying what they're studying is like, so, um, you know, to me, like very reductionist, like it's, it's these very small pieces and I feel and not and not not to be, you know, critical of that. It's just hard to think about how the kinds of stuff I'm interested in would actually interface with studies that they would also find important. Like the scale's different, the why we do the research is really different. Mm -hmm. Um, Methods, you know, we get a lot, we just (laughs) had a seminar in one of our um, seminar series where the word anecdotal was thrown around like 15 times in the most dismissive way. So that like, I don't want to have to prove myself as a qualitative scientist of worth. You know, I don't want to spend weeks and, and months. I mean, I, I do this with economists as well. There's such a general disregard for, you know, non-quantitative, non-model-based work in the sciences that I'm not interested in in sort of making the case for why qualitative work is important. I don't want to work with people that like can't make that leap, you know. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's a lot of scientists.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think one of the challenges is like when when are the, to use an economist's term to describe this, right, the diminishing marginal returns of like trying to, trying to do this, eventually you have to say, well, like, maybe it's not worth my breath anymore to try to do this if I'm not being met halfway.
1: I feel like that. I think some general, like I have some General papers that are helpful. I feel like there's some work Moon and Blackman write about like ontological and epistemological pluralism and how important it is for disciplines that don't reflect on those things to at least understand the language, recognize like their own positionality in the work. So I feel like if there's um, you know some basic uh, level and commitment, then w- you can kind of get on the same page. But it's it's often just yeah, that's not of interest for many. Um, disciplinary folks that like don't want to work across more into the critical social theory kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. I've been surprised that in some circumstances, again, because I'm used to just everyone, I assume everyone's on board with interdisciplinarity and then in some places it's almost like fighting words. It's it's like, what do you, what do you want to do? Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned, so we're already in some ways onto this track of talking about different knowledge systems and you talked, you wanted to talk about engaging having Western and non-Western systems communicate with each other. And I know that you've done a fair bit of work um, with indigenous communities, local communities in Alaska. Um, Did you start doing that during your PhD at Washington? Because you're already kind of moving Northwest at that point.
1: Yeah. So I was like super fortunate early on in my PhD to be invited to live in the Kodiak Archipelago. Um, One of the elders in Old Harbor kind of took me in and kind of welcomed me to live there. Wow. So I think that was like, yeah, super transformative in in the sense of, again, like commitment to ethnography of like actually needing to live and be part of a place to really, and even then, like you, you don't have any expertise. That's something else with anthropology, like this idea that you can go someplace for a year and then you get to represent that culture or that you know it in a deep way. And certainly you know it in a better way, having been there, but still that kind of, I have a sort of increasing discomfort with um, being a non-local, being a non-Native person, like trying to represent anything to do with indigenous culture in ways that wouldn't be, you know, that that should be indigenous led, I, I guess is mm-hmm. where, I'm, where I'm at. But yeah, so I think the- um,
0: I mean, what was that can- like? Sorry.
1: Oh yeah. What Which was what, what
0: was that like when you went there? Can you just describe the experience of being yeah, in a totally so, new foreign place?
1: Yeah, very transformative. Like I said, I'm from Pittsburgh, working class, like no engagement with the outside world, and yeah, being invited into, uh, you know, fishing culture. Just like so much of life is on the sea, you know, commercial fishing, subsistence fishing, hunting, really living off the land in, in amazing ways, and seeing the depth of knowledge. You know, every single cove and bay, you know, having stories, place names, just such intimate engagement with, yeah, the environment and um, and livelihoods based on fishing. So seeing that was, yeah, deeply transformative, these close relationships and connections to place, but also seeing the exclusion. So the fact that, yeah, these limited entry permit systems, individual fishing quota systems are put into place like very externally and, Pretty much dispossessed um, people of their right to livelihood, something they've had for 8,000 years. You know, they've negotiated Russian colonization, American colonization, all the atrocities of genocide, like horrible history. Um, and yet, you have these policies that come in as sort of a, you know, thinking this is a better way to manage fisheries. And you have people that can't, you know, can't afford to fish in their homelands. You have to fight for recognition of that. It's so. I think that was a, you know, equally transformative like wake up call about institutional racism that's at play. The privilege I had as an external person turning up and be like, this is crazy, this is so egregious, this is inequitable, like get the system fixed and people saying like, hello, we've been, you know, fighting this for, you know, hundreds of years, Um, Mm. yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a lot to take on board. Well, so to 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 ask you about your next step in the process, was was your dissertation about these systems, some of these indigenous systems in Alaska?
1: Yeah, I mean, I focused more on uh, the title of it, Privatizing the Rights to Fish, some of these okay. um, economic discourses that had created the, the property rights problem of fisheries, which was then solved by individual commodified property rights market-based as the solution. And so trying to understand how that economic discourse was so detached from any sort of fishing livelihood, you know, that I was experiencing in Kodiak. So it was really like external, not not appropriate for characterizing those fishery systems. Um, And so studying that, studying the lived experience, what is it like to be a fisherman from that archipelago, an indigenous fisherman with you know multi thousands of years of connection to the sea, to then be displaced. Like, what are all of the um stories and like heartache around that? You know, stories of elder fisherman you know where it's 30 years since those policies were put in place and he's you know sharing the the, the heart-wrenching story of like not being able to gift his son, one of his many sons first you have to pick a son right because you only got one permit for you know a family of eight or nine um having to you know pick a son to to have inherit your permit but then having a economic crisis where you can't do that you can't afford to pass on your livelihood you you have this high value asset so Mm -hmm. needing to sell that and the sort of like heartache that comes on both sides right and the son has a heartache because he can't buy the father's permit and it creates this like horrible you know uh, feeling and instilled you know it's again like these are I think deeply um deeply uh generate so much conflict and like strain still and so it's that also that part of like understanding fisheries regulation is not just regulating how many fish you take and in what ways but like these are livelihoods these are families these are communities and how that is not incorporated into the the discourses around how these um, systems should be managed.
0: Yeah I think one of my issues with the dominant discourse and policy analysis is it, it, it feels like there's almost this macho, technical oriented language that if we let feelings and as you call all call them, lived experiences creep in, then that's kind of not the purview of policy. What we're trying to find is these efficient solution to public problems. And these, um, I don't know what adjective I wanna use here, uh, sticky, very emotionally oriented concepts right the concept you actually make me think about the most Courtney when you're describing this is I've been reading a bit of of Marx since I turned 40 I don't know what that says but and he talks a lot about self-alienation as resulting from capitalistic processes where if I'm as opposed to being an artisanal worker if I get integrated into a very capitalist oriented system where I'm just doing the same thing over and over. I get alienated from what my own activities, I get alienated from the product of my efforts and I get alienated from myself. I get alienated from a sense of self, he also talks about. And I was in reading your articles and hearing you talk now, it reminds me of that kind of idea Mm -hmm. that there's a kind of self alienation. Does that fit with your understanding of what's happening? Idea. Yeah,
1: yes, and I think it's much deeper, too, in the case of indigenous Alaskans, I feel like so much of the, you know, I mean, direct assimilation, genocide, you know, people were uh, forcibly removed to go to boarding school, not able to speak their language, um, being told their cultures weren't good. There's, a, I mean, a, a very deep sense of alienation, you know, of livelihood, but also of, of culture and of self-worth and um, dignity. There's some really powerful um um, there was a really powerful um, uh, coffee hour on healing that First Alaskans Institute um, hosted around the National Day of Remembrance for the boarding school era in, in the U.S., and it was just incredibly um, powerful to hear um, elders reliving stories from those years. It's just it, it's deep, deeply. Um, you know, th- there's been so many. I think, um, yeah, just assaults to to dignity and and and. Um, in the indigenous Alaskan context, and I think the sometimes the fishing, yeah, like you said, the, these technical, these so-called technical solutions for management um, are are deeply alienating. They are, you know to, to to think to think about fishing as not livelihood based in a, in a place like the Kodiak Archipelago. it's like completely missing, you know what those systems are. They're not about maximizing profit. They're about, living one's way of life in a, in a fishing, you know, culture. And so to, to think that you would have policy solutions that are meant to be efficient, like where efficiency is the only goal or profit is the only goal is yeah, just really um, narrow and, and doing really destructive things to a lot of fishery systems.
0: So Courtney, where do you think this, because when we think about um... I think a lot about policy panaceas, right? These ideas that people get it, really fall in love with a certain policy. And I remember I went to a Zoom meeting towards the beginning of the pandemic and we were, the, the meeting was about catch shares. Um, and I said something to the effect of, I think what matters as much as which policy is like how you're actually implementing it. Is it participatory? Does it follow certain principles as opposed to one policy being the best policy? And I got a kind of a very dismissive type of pushback that I wasn't expecting. One person said, Well, that's academic, but that doesn't really help us. Another person told me that I was kind of creating straw men by attacking these aspects of ITQs that, of course, have been totally worked out. And then I go to, I, and then I find that one of the people who criticized me is like someone very involved in actually push, like in ITQ implement, implementation. And it just gave me this it was just this interesting like sociological experience of this kind of panacea mindset in my mind of really falling in love with a certain solution. Cause it does seem to me when I think about like what are the most common, like what is a good example of the panacea mindset and trying to really promote one approach, ITQs slash cat shares are, you know, towards the top of that list. And that doesn't seem to have changed. It seems to be, you know, I think the Biden administration it's not like a Republican versus Democrat thing. As far as I can tell, it seems like lots of folks are like really in this as like the way to solve our ocean problems.
1: Yeah. It's, it's pretty shocking to me too. I feel like there's been some good papers that kind of look at some of this, um, the you know the the very narrow economic discourse of ITQs, one that's first being developed in like the late '70s, much more into this yeah panacea of ITQs save fish. They save fishing communities. This sort of catch shares for conservation idea. And I mean yeah, I've studied this topic for a while. I feel like it's it's pretty misleading. I think there's a very uh, robust global consensus from the social science literature that these privatization policies like deeply dispossess indigenous fisheries, rural communities, small-scale fisheries, low-income fisheries, like they're really problematic. And I think it's this very simplistic, um, you know, rendering of of without property rights, without individual commodified property rights, you have these open access free-for-alls, you have a complete collapse of a fishery. And it's again, like not true. (laughs) I think there's many good examples of, of many, you know, community-based small-scale fisheries that do not need to be individually privatized to be sustainable, to be equitable, to be, to be good. So, yeah, it's, um, I think the, I'm thinking of some of Seth Masinko's work, looking at, at sort of like the funding, you know, looking at some of these environmental NGOs, how they're getting their funding, the relationship to, yeah, NOAA in terms of their kind of pushing on these policies. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's baffling to me. I don't, I don't fully understand why, why that's happening.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, but this, this, uh, this approach to really value efficiency or cost effectiveness and to really fall in love with that kind of once you take a step back seems kind of strange because it's not, it's not an argument that's automatically towards stewardship. And it, it reminds me of, you know, it, it's also very popular in the cap and trade discourse, right? Because that's kind of cap and trade and ITQs are kind of very similar versions of each other applied to different spaces. And in the cap and trade space, the idea is like, okay, if it's more expensive for me to emit, I'll buy some permits. And over time, it'll be cost effective to decrease pollution, which actually maybe sounds good. Maybe you actually like abate some pollution. But I don't see how the same story plays out in fisheries of cost effectiveness, Necessarily having anything to do with stewardship.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think it's problematic. And again, there's some papers. I think the um, empirical evidence, like studying, you know, these ITQ systems and their relationship to the stocks is very mixed. It's not there's no clear relationship at all. I think the idea. You know, around like if you own something, you'll take care of it. That kind of like assumption is really problematic as well in ITQ fisheries because most of the time the people that own the the rights do not fish. The people who are fishing are paying 70% lease fee to an owner. And so they're not necessarily giving any consideration uh, for the resource. And in fact, they're oftentimes, you know, upset about the relationship or they're very um, new. That's something we've learned in our work in Kodiak. A lot of the, There's an increasing kind of uh, inexperienced crew members, you know, experienced crew members won't work in those positions if they they've suffered some of those, you know, inequities and so they won't do it. And so there's people fishing maybe that don't have much engagement. And so it's in terms of resource conservation, but also in terms of safety. That's another one of these I kind of feel like red herrings there that that it's about safety. But I think the um,
0: the deadliest catch. (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, it's just
1: again, like the whole the whole reason these policies were promoted was because the potential profits of the fisheries were being dissipated, you know, the quote unquote rent dissipation in anthropological terms. That means shared. That means widely distributed. That means, you know, a lot of people are getting an opportunity to make a living from fishing. But the goal in that economic discourse is to be maximizing the, the, the naturally productive capacity of fish, the rent, right? You wanna maximize that. So that's, you want as least number of people fishing the least amount of cost to get the most amount of profit. So for some fisheries, maybe that makes sense. You know, the industrial fisheries, but to use that as like a broad scale management tool for community-based uh, small-scale fisheries, it's really, really misguided, I think.
0: Yeah. I- you reminded me of one of the things that got my attention in one of the papers I read of yours um, before this interview, which is that this idea that these policies create different classes of people. And I don't remember what you actually call them, but essentially the ownership class that was kind of lucky or fortunate enough or how we, t- we describe it, because this distribution policy of, of the rights is one of the most tricky parts of this. But the folks that end up with those rights are really in a category by themselves. And they're much more empowered relative to everyone else who becomes relatively disempowered and i saw that and you reminded of it you reminded me of it because you're talking now about like the the crew as being folks that are not empowered but they still like this is a part of like their identity and what they've been doing but suddenly they're they're beholden to their relationships with these suddenly like this uniquely privileged group that the policy has created
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that decision as well of like who to give the rights to um, was that economic, like those who had invested capital should be the ones that are rewarded with these, you know, they, they've taken the financial risk, the capital risk. And that was, yeah, a big um, point of discussion with the crew. Like we've put our lives on the line, right? We're, we're you know, we're, we're risking our life. I mean, that's, again, to this day in Kodiak, very um, uh just hearing those stories of, of guys that had crew, you know, crewed on, but also were, were the skippers of boats. They ran the boats for decades. They got zero in the Halibut IFQ program. The entire amount went to the boat owner, regardless of whether that person like had been on the boat at all. So you have stories of you know wives of skippers, you know, <clears throat> just like you know punching somebody's wife of an owner because it was so you know considered so deeply unfair and the crew members as well I mean just that you know no allocation to labor like it just it, it yeah it seemed it's yeah a huge inequity huge inequity
0: yeah do you think that the the ITQ catch your policy I don't want to try to make it sound like I'm building in the answer to the question is I'm wondering whether it's it's appropriate to view it as a symptom of a broader economic framework, because one of the things you were talking about earlier in this interview is, you know, the, the issues that the indigenous communities have had with the ITQs and the catcher policies are one example of a deeply troubling and challenging history with external actors. Right. Which made me think of this, like, okay, this is, this is one example in a broader context of, like colonial oppression and systematic disenfranchisement and that's not something honestly i think i underappreciated when i was thinking about this because i i was just thinking about okay here's the policies but yeah. do you interpret these policies as being kind of another symptom or another example of a broader pattern
1: yes i think so and i think the fishermen um, you know the lutzik fishermen that i work with supiak fishermen uh, think it's another yeah like a example of colonialism too it's this yeah model of how to manage a fishery that's coming from an urban, you know, Western context. And so, yeah, absolutely. I think it's an extension of, um, you know, uh, there's a couple of great quotes um, in some of my uh, interviews with folks about, like the privatization of land, right? And, and how that <laughs> how that has benefited certain people and, and not others. And so it's not like these, that, that's something that kind of gets me sometimes is this sort of unintended consequences. Like, oh, these are fine policies, but, there's been some, you know, there's some unintended consequences. Like these are completely um, predictable consequences, right? When you're, when you're privatizing the right to something and you have huge inequities in who has access to capital, all of the historical inequities and dispossessions, like, yeah. So I think that's another point to always kind of push back on this idea of these are unintended or, or side effects. Yeah. Yeah
0: yeah yeah it was interesting i really listened i in addition to making a podcast i listened to a lot of them and one of my favorite ones is called is planet money which is actually more diverse in its its subject matter than its title kind of indicates and they had a podcast episode about catch shares and i think they even referenced like the deadliest catch narrative it's like okay we're getting away from the the sea derby and i was so disappointed in the episode uh you know, cause as a good listener, I feel like I have ownership over their content somehow. And at the, at the end of it, they kind of said, well, some fishermen, you know, there's some inequities, but you know, fishermen are kind of grumpy. Like that's literally what they said. And I was like, wait, And I, I couldn't believe it. I played it again. I was like, really? Like that's, it's just like this little thing at the end. It's like, well, we, the, we've solved the big problem and some people are a little grumpy about it.
1: Oh gosh. Well, and now I want to go listen. I don't think I've heard that one. It would probably be very infuriating for me too, but yeah, that's, It's super disappointing. I feel like that control of that narrative, despite, again, like this global social science literature, it's just not, um, it's not breaking through. And so I think that's also maybe the, the power of some of these, yeah, economists, NGOs to kind of present, this is the, the consensus opinion on these. And so when you're presenting that another you know, set of uh, information, it's hard to break up against that because it seems commonsensical now and it's, it, right. yeah, it's troubling.
0: Yeah, it's, it's hard once something becomes common sense to fight it even when you feel like there's, yeah, a point to be made. So, so a lot of this has to do really with the, it's a funny term that I was taught in my education, that a, a lot of the issue here is the alienability of the rights. So you have the right to fish, but you can buy and sell that. And the lingo in my field, we call that, that's alienability. You can, it can be alienated from you. And, and what that has led to is the alienation of a lot of local communities from their rights. Do you think that, is there anything savable here about the catch share system? is kind of the question. If we, if we chuck the whole market thing, which I know a lot of people think that's part and parcel to it, like it is about the commodification of the fishing rights. If, if we somehow convince people, because I've heard some people argue that, look, the fundamental idea that you need governance and you need property rights to manage systems is a good one. Where we went wrong is by making them commodities and allowing them to be bought and sold. Is there any part of you that buys that, that thinks if, if we weren't so focused on making a market for everything, including the rights to fish, then we could salvage something out of the government's role in fisheries governance in this direction?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I think the alienability is a key piece of what didn't work in Alaska. I think if the rights were embedded in place, um, that would, you know, I think the you sort of get get around some of the um, profiteering, you know, the folks that want to buy rights because they're going to make money on it versus the people that actually want to live in those fishing villages having those rights in perpetuity. I think that whole idea that, that, you know, livelihood rights could be alienable is still so, like, um, you know, antithetical to the way that fishing cultures work, you know, the idea of these are place-based, they're, they're, they shouldn't, you shouldn't have the right to sell that. So I think that's a key piece of, yeah, if if they weren't alienable, but embedded in place, then I, I think there'd be a lot less issue in Alaska. Mm. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of, so for my dissertation, I was in rural New Mexico, working with a bunch of traditional Hispanic farming systems, and they had a very similar issue with their water rights. And water markets have gotten a lot of similar attention for similar reasons. And they have these similar issues where they wanted, it's really just what you're saying, Courtney, they wanted a lot of these local farmers. They didn't want the water rights to be saleable because once they're out of the community, they're out forever. They're, they're being pumped. The water's being pumped down to Albuquerque or wherever it is, right? The whole like water runs uphill to money. Right. And a lot like what they were trying to do is to write into their bylaws that in order to sell your rights, you need community approval. So it's not up to like one person to like sell it out. And so it just seems very similar Um across these different sectors and contexts. And it's, I feel like, did, did you say this even earlier in this interview? It's, it's just seems like, yeah, this is partly what markets do. Like markets are really great in a lot of ways, right? Like our lives would be so impossibly different without this abstract concept of markets. But if you're gonna make something tradable and there's power asymmetries systematically across groups, like this is not a surprise.
1: Yeah, no, totally. I, I I agree. And I think there's been, again, advocacy in, um, again, in Kodiak to have institutions that can be the recipients of quotas, of permits. So again, this sort of individual, you know, a permit holder wants to sell their permit, uh, that could be held in trust, you know, for the community use. So these ideas of ways to embed what's already exists, these permits and quotas, but yeah, future, I think just sort of having that, you um, you know, that these are, you know, the, the fisheries off the coast, you know, of a location, um, you know, those are not necessarily open access for U.S. Uh, citizens, right, that the whole way we manage kind of federal fisheries, that if it's offshore, it's anyone has equal access to it, I and mean, that's something to Rethink and I think there's a lot of um, again indigenous uh, stewardship around you know these are place uh, place and water systems that are deeply connected like forever connected that the thought that you could dispossess. You know the fish from the land based community is just very, very um, offensive. Yeah.
0: Mm. So to. Change the topic just a little bit to something you mentioned early in the interview that I really want to make sure I, I hear your thoughts on this idea of um, well so I've been I've been working through uh, some work by Ficker Berke's recently um, most of these books Sacred Ecology where he defines um, he distinguishes he makes this interesting distinction between local knowledge oh gosh I hope I get this right now and traditional ecological knowledge and and he has this idea that traditional ecological knowledge it's, he kind of has a cultural evolutionary argument. And I've, I, I like this idea. I like this approach that the way to think about these local systems, it's not local. Now it's, it's not just that they know, um, a lot of local facts. It's not just like random assortment of things that they know about places, but there's this very adaptive nature to what they know and what they do. And that, what, cause, cause when we talk about indigenous knowledge, we talk about local knowledge. I mean, fr- frankly, for, for me, it always, I always feel a little awkward again, cause I'm like this other person talking about this whole other system from my own, like, you know position of everything about my position. Um, and so I think my question to you is Courtney, you know you talked about trying to get these different knowledge systems to talk to each other or maybe that's not how you put it, but we have these different knowledge systems. I'm coming from the Western one, right? I'm trying to sensitize myself to this other thing that's very unfamiliar to me. So how do we, how do we talk about this other system to folks that are maybe sympathetic about it, but don't really, cause it, it, you know, if you're sympathetic to it, it sounds good to say, okay, like we need to get these systems to like communicate or we need to value one, but what does that actually mean? Like, how do you actually do that in a way that, say, doesn't co-opt the the indigenous system based on the values of the Western system, which is a critique I've heard?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's part of the reason I was hoping my colleague might join today, Dr. Jessica Black, who's a Gwich'en scholar who I work closely with. I think, and you know, me as a non-Native scholar, I think that it's becoming increasingly um, clear that A lot of this work on bridging knowledge systems should be Indigenous led. So, the idea of, yeah, a non native person is never going to understand the kind of complexity and, um, you know, nuances of Indigenous knowledge and shouldn't really. But um, the sense of like bridging knowledge systems is really, I think, a very big topic in Indigenous scholarship right now. So, it's less about, you know, um, quote unquote, Utilizing TEK or you nutritional know, knowledge in for validation in Western science, or to you know inform hypotheses or whatever contextualized results. It's still that kind of extractive colonial relationship. It's more recognizing knowledge pluralism, recognizing you know indigenous knowledge systems as diverse, in, intact, equally valid to Western ones, and thinking about ways to actually. Bridge those. I know we've been reading. Um, Dr. Andrea Reed is an Indigenous fisheries scientist who's got some recent publications on that. So, how do you combine Western, you know, stock assessment type ways of knowing fishery systems with Indigenous knowledge? You know, maybe qualitative assessment of, of quality of fish uh, it, it, to be used in relationship, maybe with like modeling uh, abundance or, or things like that. So. I think there's a lot of really interesting scholarship on appropriate ways, ethical ways to bridge knowledge systems. And I think in our, the teams that I'm part of, we recognize the the really important and critical need for indigenous scholars to be leading that work and not having Western scientists and Western scholars kind of proposing, sort of replicating that like colonial model of our science would be a lot better if we could you know, use some indigenous knowledge. I think that's really um, not appropriate, and so it should be shifted to be more of how do we understand that Western sciences are not the only expertise on this on this topic. You know, in Alaska, it's again pretty egregious because indigenous peoples have been here for you know twenty thousand plus years. Their knowledge systems are incredibly deep. The scientific ones are superficial, right? Just very very recent time. And yet, they are used almost exclusively in governing the fisheries of Alaska in the research. And so, it's very, um, you know, it's it's it, to me into the work the work of our teams kind of reflective of that ongoing kind of colonialism of European ways of knowing are superior, mm-hmm. European ways of not knowing are are legitimate, and we need to validate other ways in that way. And, and we're saying no, that's not appropriate. Um,
0: yeah. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, this is this really kind of flips the scientific enterprise on its head. And so I'm interested in how that path has been for you. A question about, about the governance of it. So do you, do you think that the, the kind of co-option of say TK and local knowledge for purposes of, if you're trying to work with like an agency like a management agency and th- they don't come from that perspective. They come from this kind of new thin perspective. In that context, would you ever be comfortable with this kind of instrumentalist integration of TEK or are you still uncomfortable with it in that context as well?
1: I mean, I, I think the acknowledgement that indigenous expertise exists is, is a big step or you know, it's an important step. But so much more, yeah, like the the instrumental inclusion of TEK, yeah, and like a management report, I mean, so much more transformations needed, like recognizing the lack of indigenous scientists and people in those agencies, the, the lack of respect and deep relation building with the communities, you know, upon whose lands they're based, upon whose fisheries they're managing, like so much of it is this deeper like respect and relationship building that's needed so i I just feel like that's such a Mm. a key part much less than like you know i i don't want to discourage um you know the 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 sort of interest in recognizing um Indigenous knowledge, but I just feel like it, it runs the risks of, of sort of perpetuating harm if it's done in a way that's like extractive. And I think that's very, we have this new program, DeMampta, I don't know if um, it's um, a Yupik and Supiak word meaning all of us and are really trying to transform Western fisheries education in Alaska and, and research and governance. And as part of that program, we have nine indigenous um, scholars, fellows that are part of our program and just being able to reflect with them this past semester um, on some of the talks that are given about, yeah, Western scientists coming and and saying things like we, you know, there's this, you know, untapped reservoir of TEK that we could, you know, um, mine, mine, literally mine for, for, for improving our science. It's so offensive, the the experiences of how that's heard for for an Indigenous student and how that erases, you know, that depth of knowledge. And it's just, it's very, um, it's problematic. And so I think that's part of that, you know, it needs to be done in a way with care and with, like, nuance and recognition of, like, the historic and kind of ongoing erasure of Indigenous peoples and and expertise and and everything. Hmm.
0: So this is a challenging space to be in. Was this something that for you happened incrementally? Was this a path for you where you got more and more engaged in these ideas? And how has that been for you, Courtney? I mean, because I'm just interested. I, I, I think about the term boundary actor a lot as someone who bridges gaps between different groups or say knowledge systems. I don't want to impose that I, like that interpretation on you, but it's it's... Yeah. It's where my brain is heading currently. And I'm interested how that experience has has developed for you.
1: Yeah, I'd say it it has been incremental, but also like big paradigm shift too. I think it's through the close collaborations with Dr. Black and other um, Indigenous scholars and leaders that I think led me to understand how even in like the critical theory, social science that I thought I was contributing to equity in good ways, I was still reproducing that. Indigenous exclusion and erasure, or using Indigenous um, issues in a way to promote scholarship that didn't center equity for. The, I mean, it. Did, I feel like my work has always tried to advance equity for the communities that I've worked with. Like, so I think that's been consistent. But more of like wh- whose expertise, whose ways of knowing are are best to, you know, help that transformation. And and so I think that's been. Um, really powerful feeling like directly account like who am I accountable to Mm. recognizing like those elders that housed me that that showed me their amazing ways of life like I'm accountable to them as a as a researcher and scholar and person and you know those relationships are lifelong that's another thing I think like you know thinking about being a graduate student you make relationships with communities and you think of that all like the five years of my program, but like these are lifelong relationships and and kind of just really remaking what research looks like and like who who it's for, how it's done. Yeah, it's been pretty big um, shifts in how I think about that. And we have active discussions, you know, in our team of indigenous and non-indigenous researchers and students, like we're constantly thinking about what is an appropriate role, you know, for me to take. so that's something that we, we think a lot about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I imagine it requires just walking through a lot of uncertainty that you can't totally resolve before you take the next step.
1: Yeah, I think that's something where the, the sort of caution, like doing things with care and intentionality and like not reproducing harms is so important. But yet um, we also, I think are given guidance by you know, many indigenous leaders that we work with that these crises are now, like the, these inequities are being lived, you know, the, um, the kinds of um, institutions like at my university that I'm part of, these um, you know federal and state agencies that manage fisheries, that manage communities, like these are crises that are happening. So it's also the sense of like getting action in motion maybe before it's perfect is also needed Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like for me, I'm, I'm in that space of just trying to, yeah, do the best I can do, show up when I'm asked to show up, push back when I can't, you know, being part of these dialogues with ITQs or whatever, like being the uncomfortable, like you said, being the uncomfortable person who's vocalizing something that's against the, the choir of, of the current, you know, situation and bringing data and evidence to suggest like, hey, you, you've missed this big piece here, like being that person that's kind of willing to, to make people uncomfortable to sort of um, continue to go to bat for those issues. I feel like that's part of my role or, you know, that's one I'm becoming like more comfortable with, even though it's uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, Courtney, um, I, I think listeners would love to hear the answer to this question. When you're doing that, how how do you think you do that well? that's a hard thing to do and it's not just an intellectual enterprise right it's a very interpersonal enterprise when you feel like you have success with it why do you think that is
1: well i i guess i'd say one thing that comes to mind is is that this is long game work long-term work relationships help a lot and so to the extent that you can build relationships with people start to build allies within other disciplines within other Institutions, you start to then like, yeah, humanize what this is. Like the the understanding deepens. So I feel like those deep, cultivating, strengthening deep relationships, bringing your full self into the work. I think that's again the the guidance um, from indigenous leaders and in the way that we do our work, like hosting real conversations. You know, using a circle dialogue, having a set of agreements about like how we're going to show up, how we're going to have conversations how we're going to respect each other can be really helpful to kind of, to be able to like really to get real. Right. It's so much as like polarized and hard right now. And, and we're just, um, there's been some very powerful. I mean, we've been hosting racial equity dialogues in fisheries, like incredibly hard work to no one wants to do it. It's uncomfortable, but it's so needed in the, and recognizing the, you know, the sort of white privilege of, I don't need to have this conversation. You know, I could go on with my, you know many of our faculty like they, they don't ever need to engage in this conversation but recognizing you know the the the, the crisis that communities are facing because they have been dispossessed from their rights to fish or they're having a crisis about their salmon not returning because we have these you know the, the, the sort of industrial fleets are are catching a lot of fish and local f- people trying to catch subsistence aren't even able to fit like just deep deep crises are happening and so i think that kind of motivating people to recognize that like we're part of this problem and how to fix it. I don't know.
0: There's a lot of powerful ideas there. Um, I like the idea of humanizing and, and emphasizing relationships. Cause yeah, I feel like it's, it doesn't work if it's like a, it doesn't work as well. If it's a kind of one-off comment, it's, it, you need to kind of, you just, what you said resonates with me that it's about the relationships that you can build with people. And that does take yeah. time. And you, you almost have to like invest in someone who you disagree with
1: yeah yeah and i again i'll say that the mumpta program you know we we have um so it's myself and then dr peter wesley he's a fisheries um, ecologist and then dr charlene stern and dr jessica black are both gwich scholars so the four of us are kind of leading that and it's, you know, again, I, I think we're trying to lead um, and elevate indigenous knowledge. So in a lot of ways, um, Jessica and Charlene are the intellectual, you know, guides for our work and Peter and I in our fisheries context are trying to like bring the work to a larger, you know, group within our faculty. And um. So so those relationships are, yeah, you know, five plus years of kind of building enough trust to stand a program like that up and then having enough, you know, Peter and I and all of us. But in the fishery side, you know, we're constantly reflecting on, you know, what's happening, you know, in in this faculty meeting or what's happening with this student. Like it's kind of a constant um, reflect when you're trying to make transformation or big changes. I think it's a constant like you know, learning and and refining and thinking strategy, it's, it's very, um, it's exciting, but also, yeah, very, um, hard work, I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Something else I want to make sure to mention as you were talking, this, this, this idea that you mentioned is also resonating with me of who I'm accountable to, because I think it's a really powerful question that actually all of us need to answer for ourselves to kind of live better lives. I'll just put that out there, I guess but it reminded me of one of the quotations from one of your uh, articles of the description of a different way of viewing our relationship with resources or even calling them resources with nature and this sense of having an accountability to uh, wildlife and different species Mm -hmm. as, as a really like pretty fundamentally different way of imagining that relationship. And for me, I'm it's I that's kind of intellectually professionally I've been institutionalized to think to not think that way to think about a more instrumentalist view of our relationship with nature which is not why I got into the field actually it's because I just have these like for me sublime like important experiences so I don't know if there was a question, but I wanted to make that connection because it felt important. And one of the the, the you're just uh, one of the descriptions of your papers that felt the most powerful about how different these knowledge systems and it's not just about it, I don't want to say it's not just about knowledge, but it's embedded in that knowledge is a whole way of being. It's not knowledge as a list of facts. It's knowledge as uh, a cultural system and the way in which we view ourselves and our relationship to the environment. Yeah. And it, it embodied all that when I read it. And so that felt quite powerful.
1: Yeah, th- thank you. And again, I think this is the, the the teaching that we've been able to understand from indigenous scholars around, yeah, the, the nature of how to do this work cross um, cultures, cross knowledge systems when you know, indigenous knowledge systems are, you know, viewing fish as a non-human relation. They are, they're akin they They have as, they actually have, you know, just as much agency as people. They're in charge. How we treat each other affects how they are with us. Um, this deep level of, of spirituality and the kind of understanding the, We've been reading and listening to many indigenous scholars in some of our classes. I'm thinking of um, Dr. Leroy Little Bear, who has some great um, videos um, from from his perspective, um, Blackfeet, I believe, um, about spirit as, as like such a fundamental part of, of indigenous, you know, um, cosmology, ontology, um, and thinking about how how can or you know how can these systems in the in the Western realm where, where you know, any sort of um, spirituality or any kind of non-physical thing has, has no place. Like in data, in shaping decision-making, it's just, again, like not part of how, how to think about indigenous governance systems, you know, maybe being able to be quite distinct then from Western. So in this case, maybe it's not bridging as much as it's recognition of that cultural pluralism um, and also, you know, the the sovereignty of indigenous um, governments to to manage in their own way, and I think certain um, th- there's a lot of movement for that in Alaska in different ways, and it's it's been um, I think yeah th- these systems are not necessarily very open to that in the western and you know in the state and federal systems in Alaska, but a lot of I think movement toward um, demanding those changes in, from indigenous leaders.
0: Hmm.
1: But I think that it relates. I think to what you were saying about are we accountable to how? How do we do the work that we do? In what way do we do what we do? And so I think again, trying to learn. For me, as a non-native person here, a white settler here, how do how am I able to be in good relationship in my academic work, but in my life and in, in my you know raising my children in a, in you know on Dena'ina lands in a way that's respectful um, to the current and future and past, you know, just kind of recognizing how we're in these systems that are perpetuating a lot of inequity and injustices, and we're trying to change them, but we're also living in the current moment. And so how to be, what are these small ways or large ways that we can contribute to Better relations, um, ac- yeah, across all you know, human relations, land relations, relationships with all beings. I mean, it's it's um, something I think about a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's challenging to be, and this is, I think, there's different ways to describe this. The, the challenge that kind of this collective awareness gives you of, oh, this system is really broken in a lot of ways. I remember, I'm. Since I was like six or seven, I've just not understood this idea of throwing something away. This is a different context entirely, but it's just the word disposable infuriates me. It's like nothing's disposable. Like you're not, you're not, that's not a solution. And so it's just how do you be a part of this system that you know just feels like? How do you not let it kind of contaminate you when you know you're participating? because it's hard to imagine not participating, but then it's like, what do you, I'm reiterating what you said to kind of digest it, I think.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. And it, you know, I guess it also makes me, um, think of, yeah, the kind of, uh, discourse around like, in what choice do we have as individuals when so much of this, these issues are like these large structural, this, the system around us. So I, I think that's something we, um, we think a lot about of like, what, um, how to affect change, like within our own, but but through the system. And so we are we're we're deeply engaging in trying to shift at least our institution, uh, our College of Fisheries and Ocean Sciences. Um, you had mentioned the the word broken system, and I um, I can share with maybe for the notes um, that um, this really amazing report called Survival Denied, which is about. Um, some of the lived experiences of Alaska Native uh, families living in the systems that we're in in Alaska.
0: Mm. Yeah, that'd be great to share. I can put in the show notes. So Courtney, to to start to wrap up a bit, um, I'd love to move to the current moment and the future. And I'll kind of wrap this into one question. The first part is, how has the pandemic affected a lot of these processes in your work? and the communities you're engaged with, and moving forward with respect to the pandemic or irrespective of it, um, what are some of your hopes uh, for your own work? What are some challenges that you really want to continue to meet in the future?
1: So I think the pandemic largely has paused our work. We've been really trying to stay in step with the wishes of communities that we work with for in our, in our research for example so gosh you know um hearing um a master's defense i think it was at the beginning of the pandemic last last spring um hearing about yeah the village of igiyagic one of the villages in bristol bay um, who in the previous pandemic you know 100 years ago had so few people survive so like the mass um amounts of of death that accompanied the um, flu epidemic in the 1918-1919. Learning that history, and I hadn't known about it as deeply in Alaska, but being very um, concerned and not wanting to uh, be a vector for any spread in, in our state and, and just really w- many communities shut down. Um, things have changed in this Current Delta, um, you know, there's a lot, actually I don't know if, if it's been making national news, but we're in a crisis standard of care in Alaska. It's incredibly um, sad because people um, in rural, in Alaska native villages who would need medical care, you know, in Anchorage or Fairbanks, the hospitals are full. And so there's no, it's, there's no, it's just a very, um, many um, people are not able to access care. And there's just, anyway, there's a lot going on there. So, in our project, we have not done any in person work um, because we didn't want to be, you know, in any way um, being a vector for disease spread. And we were meant to have a retreat that we, part of our trying to be Indigenous led pedagogy for our new program, we really um, have been centering land based education. So, thinking about being on the land. Um, with elders um, teaching our students, uh, we had to cancel a retreat that was really heartbreaking because we'd spent a ton of time planning it. But also with elders, didn't so anyway. We've largely just taken the the uh, approach of of not being in person yet. We have been able to do some Zoom. Um, you know, we had a nice Zoom retreat and trying to build relation and community over Zoom. I think your your thoughts on like the future for me. I'm um, I'm really trying to you know, again, put, push on the systems in ways that I can with the role I have, you know, as a tenured professor and and being invited to, you know, National Academy of Science panel or th- these, um, you know, things that do matter and, and where a voice can be heard that maybe wouldn't be otherwise. I try to, to be able to, to bring that, bring the work to um, these panels and things. And I think the my commitments moving forward, I think, are largely student. You know, I'm focusing on. We have an amazing cohort of Indigenous students, trying to really um, help train the next generation um, to be in these roles. Indigenous um, students to be taking over, you know, as as the fishery researchers and managers of the future. So really excited about that, and just trying to figure out ways I can be a good mentor for students. One of one of
0: the concerns I have in so many systems is, is how little formal reward systems reward mentorship and and kind of giving. And you kind of have to find, I think a lot of the times your own reasons for doing some of these things.
1: Yeah, that's true. And I guess reflective of, you know, these institutional changes that are needed. And that's something we're trying to do again with our just small steps. So, you know, changing the promotion and tenure, you know, uh, guidelines in our, like across our university to be better um, inclusive of, um, well, you know, in the case of indigenous knowledge production and community engagement and, and all of the deep relations that are part of that, that might not be, yeah, given credit, you know, quote unquote credit in a tenure and review process. So making those, and yeah, I think similarly for, centering student mentorship versus, you know, publication or things. So that's, I, I definitely have, you know, I'm happy to be uplifting my students and in, in publishing. I ha- it's been a lot less of a focus of mine recently, just because I'm putting a lot of time and effort into helping develop this new program and some of these institutional changes. And I have the freedom to do that, you know, um, at the stage of career that I'm at. So hopefully... Others, are different, you know, others of us that are maybe in our, our um, roles already and don't need to, to, you know, quote unquote, prove our academic scholarship might feel that freedom to, to, mm-hmm. to reinvest elsewhere. And um, yeah.
0: No, man, I think that's inspiring, Courtney. I think we need people to do these things. I mean, it's because you're doing what you're doing, but you're also norm setting. Right. And you're, you're, you know, by doing this, you set a model for other folks and you start to normalize. This is like, oh, I don't need to. And it's also formally changing the, the, the formal decisions. That is the other piece. And it's, it's great to hear that as well, because it just until that also happens, you know, a lot of other stuff's not going to not to get as far yeah. as we want. You have to formally value it as well. Okay. This has been great. Are there um, threads of the conversation you want to make sure that we return to topics that didn't get enough attention that you want to discuss even briefly before we sign off?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the, the one thing I'd say, um, and I think we've covered it a bit already, but the, the idea that some of, um, some of the, Eurocentrism or, or, or the sort of perpetuation of colonialism that I spoke about earlier, it's like invisible or it it can be invisible for, for many faculty and I, and, and, and students, uh, you know, white, white students and, and, you know, Western European type um, knowledge system, you know, being the only um, what's being taught, right. Or what's normalized, what's the kind of um, norm. And so to the extent that, we can help reveal that and and have other um, awareness of that. I I think that's helpful. Being able to host classes where, you know, indigenous and non-indigenous students are sharing their perspectives of speakers and course material and having them be radically different, you know, suggests that there's this, you know, I think this this pervasive Eurocentrism, especially in the sciences and the STEM fields um, that, I think is a really important shift for the future to have that be recognized that, you know, European ways of knowledge are one way of knowing and there's a pluralism and that pluralism at the, at the minimum should be acknowledged.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to hear more episodes, you can use your local podcasting app or go to our website, incomingpodcast.org. The Incoming Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.